You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. All right, amen. Well, would you uh, open up your Bible to chapter with you to the book of Titus? You're going to see uh, some letters from, from Paul, Philippians, Colossians, the Thessalonians. You're going to come to. Uh, you're going to come to First and Second Timothy, and then you'll see Titus. So uh, we're going to be in Titus chapter three, and this is actually our final uh, week in Titus. So we're going to try to finish uh, starting in verse nine through the end of the letter. Uh, but because it's our last time here and it's not that long of a letter, I actually would like to read the whole thing uh, this morning. And the reason why is uh, we're coming down to the end of it and you get down to some parts of the letter where you remember that it's a letter. You remember that this was not a, a theological commentary that was written in order to kind of help the church, but it was something written by a man named Paul who was sent by the Lord to preach the gospel, establish churches and leaders in different parts of the world. And one of those leaders that he had established was a man named Titus, and who was left in a certain place with a certain task so that believers would be encouraged, so that the gospel would be uh, preached, and that the gospel would be, the gospel message would be protected and kept pure, not polluted by other kinds of worldly thoughts and ideas about who God is and what he wants from us. So we're coming to these, this part of the letter, and I think because we're just remembering that it's a letter, let's, let's put ourselves as much as we can in the same kind of context that they would have been experiencing this letter. So the way these things works is Paul writes a letter, and it's written to somebody, but normally that letter would be read publicly to the church, to all the believers in that town or in that local congregation, they would read the letter out loud and then they would begin to learn from it. So let's start at the very beginning. The letter of Paul to Titus. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To talk, how about that for an intro? <laughs> he could have just said, hey, to Paul. <laughs> to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good. Self-control, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine, and also able to rebuke those who contradict him. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. 
since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in, res in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us all from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for the good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. <laughs> but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. For I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. 
And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need, and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. <coughs> Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So Paul wrote this letter to Titus for some reasons that he states really clearly. And, and most of all, the reason was so that the church that had been planted there on the island of Crete, a really rough place and a really difficult place to be a Christian, much less a Christian leader, at a gathering of Christians who are seeking to affect the culture and see it redeemed and, and come to reflect the character and the light of God, the love of God, a difficult place to be a Christian. And our Christianity is based on this truth, this gospel message that Jesus died for sinners and it is an act of grace from God, a gift from God that can't be earned is the way God approaches us. And it's through our faith in this grace of of God, that we are saved, that we're reconciled to God, that we become part of His family. This truth, this message was being attacked. It was being polluted, it was being uh, infiltrated with, with particularly a certain type of false gospel that said, Jesus is great, Jesus is good, you need Him, but you don't only need Him. There's something else you need. You need yourself. You need to do good. You need to be better. You need to do good works that will impress God, that will cause God to give you favor based on your own goodness rather than just simply trusting in the goodness of Jesus. So it's interesting the flow of this letter. Theological clarity is what Paul is after here. Theological clarity, and when we say theological, we mean our theology, what we believe about God, words about God, studying God. The theological clarity is going to end up producing, resulting in a life that's shaped by that theological clarity. Those truths don't just stand on their own as knowledge intellectually, but they actually have a transforming effect on our lives. So the entire Christian family is going to begin to look like God, act like God, speak like God. I don't mean in His sovereignty, in His omniscience, in His omnipotence, but in His character, in His goodness, in His love, in His graciousness, His mercy, His forgiveness. We are to be becoming more like Jesus. Without theological clarity, we can't do that. Or at least it's stunted, or it's warped, or it's derailed, and we begin to look like maybe Jesus in some ways, but then like the world in other ways. And we just want to look like Jesus. So this is the intent of Paul's letter. The particular attack, of course, that's coming on the truth of the gospel is coming from Jewish people who were not really believers in Jesus because they were still believing in themselves, they wanted to add Jesus to their good works. We know for a Jewish person who, who negates or who nullifies the gospel, who counts it as not the only truth of God for salvation, but still believes in obeying the Old Testament law in order to be saved, that these people were not truly Christian. So these people are coming in pretending to be Christians, but really trying to convince Christians that the only way they could be saved was still through their obedience to Old Testament law. 
But again, that nullifies Christ. It negates, negates the gospel. It forgets the gospel. It forgets God's grace. We see the dangers of adding to or taking away from the gospel of grace. So works righteousness equals no gospel. That's the danger. Paul wrote about this in Galatians. Galatians 2.21, he said, I do not nullify the grace of God because in Galatia the same attack is happening on the truth. It was believed that you needed Jesus plus your own good works in order to be saved. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So this isn't some secondary minor issue. Is it all Jesus? I'm trusting only and completely in Him that He lived the perfect life of righteousness that I could never live. So I trust completely in His work and I trust not at all in my work. This is the gospel. And if you're saying, I trust completely in Jesus' work, but of course, I mean, if you don't work, I mean, you can't be saved. If that's the way you feel, then you have immediately polluted the truth of the gospel, and you've made it not the gospel. That's horrible news. Gospel literally means good news, but to believe that you have to be good enough to be saved is horrible news. Because we all know in our hearts we're not good enough for God. So we can't nullify the grace of God by adding our own good works to what Christ did for us. It was enough. It was sufficient. So then here's the pattern. It's kind of a A, B, A, B pattern. I don't know if you ever studied that kind of stuff in school, but it's, it can get really interesting. But the pattern here is real simple. It's really just kind of A, B, A, B. Chapter 1 addresses the need for elders. And there's a positive kind of connotation to it. That these men have mature character. They've matured. They've been sanctified in their faith and their pursuit of God to the point that they can actually be an example for others. And they can serve by knowing the truth and teaching the truth. So they're set apart by the Holy Spirit to serve the church by teaching, guarding the truth from lies. Chapter 2 describes how people in the church can take responsibility for glorifying God in their, actually, in their actual daily lives. How we grow in personal holiness that demonstrates the character of God. But you notice sandwiched between there, starting in verse 10 of chapter 1, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. Fast forward down to verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So there's, there's kind of an A part of the pattern that says this is the model of good. This is what we want. And then there's the B. This is what you need to watch out for. And starting in chapter 2, here's A. Here's how we can order our lives. Here's how we can follow Jesus. Even, like, even in categories, older men, older women, younger women, younger men. Even slaves he speaks to. Here's how we can model our lives. He reminds us to be submissive in chapter 3. To be ready for every good work. Speak evil of no one. Avoid these kinds of things. Be like this. Gentle. Courteous. But then here comes the B part of the pattern. We know we were once foolish. Disobedient. Led astray. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. 
passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now here comes the A again. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. And then we come down to the B part of the pattern again. After this admonishment to be careful to devote ourselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable. Verse 9, here comes the B part of the pattern again. So we see this pattern going all throughout the letter. And we get to this part here in verse 8. And it's, it's kind of hard to begin at verse 9 without referring to, to verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So the, the message of this letter has been, like we said, theological clarity, understanding the truth about God will result in a transformed life that's filled with good works, doing good. Because what does God do? He always does good. Yeah. He's always doing good work, even to those who don't trust Him or believe Him. Right. Yeah. Like the scriptures say, He makes it rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. He has grace for all of his creation. The fact that any human being woke up this morning is an act of God's grace. So God is always doing good, and we should reflect that goodness by always being ready for every good work, or as verse 14 says, to be a people who are zealous for good works. He says this saying is trustworthy, and we should insist on it. That we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus, not our own works, and that saved people will devote themselves to doing good. We, we have to insist on this. This is what the church is about. But here again, the B part of the pattern, we have to see. This is what Christ died for, not for this. This is what Christ died for, not for this. And we want to exist in that realm of what Christ died for. We want to arrange our lives around what Christ died for. Pursue that. Love that. Learn that. And be careful to avoid those things that he's not interested in. The things he did not die to create. So verse 9, foolish controversies. We have our share of these in the church. Uh, we really don't have to look far to find some of them. What he's talking about here, avoiding foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, these things, again, are, are mostly wrapped up, as far as we know, in these things that Jewish false teachers were trying to impose on the church. There were all kinds of things in the Old Testament about the law, things that you had to do to be saved, things that were less important, and generally, just like with all legalists, the things that you're going to stress are the things that you find most naturally easy to obey, right? I'm really good at this stuff, so I think this is what God's really about. And then the stuff that you really stink at, you're like, oh, I don't see that. I mean, that couldn't be important. It's about grace, right? This is what they were doing. So they were picking and choosing the kinds of things from the Old Testament that they were going to stress, that they were going to impose on people and count as necessary for salvation. <laughs> Even to the point of looking at genealogies and trying to figure out who are you descended from? Which branch of Israel are you? And these kinds of things. And, and, and I mean, there's all kinds of things that arose from this. Numerology and 
and, and stuff like that, where they're trying to calculate generational things and find out where God's favor is. And it was just really foolish. Dissensions, of course, they were fighting about this kind of stuff. And the reason why I'm, I'm talking about this in their context is so that you can start to hear it ringing in our context. You know that we have all these kinds of foolish controversies and even genealogies. You know, there are lots of people out there who say they love Jesus, but then they compartmentalize people depending on who they're descended from. Causing fights all the time. Quarrels about the law. Which laws do we still need to obey? Which ones are important to God? Which ones are left of the past? Uh, I think a few things that particularly are foolish controversies that are plaguing us today, stuff like this, dividing over whether or not we can worship together depending on if we use instruments or raise our hands when we sing. Listen, you may laugh about that, but you know entire denominations of believers have gathered together just around that principle. Whether or not it's okay to stay like this when you sing or stay like this when you sing. Whole denominations, non-profit organizations started, people pushing others out and bringing some in just depending on temperament while you sing, expression while you sing. Doesn't it sound so foolish when you think of it that way? Whether or not you can play a guitar when you sing? I mean, obviously, you know which side of that we land on. And which side of the Bible I Not to cause dissension, you understand. But the point is, being divided over these things is foolish. That's the point. Being divided over that is foolish. Dividing over when Jesus will come back. Trying to figure out the date of Jesus' return, even though the Bible clearly says you will not be able to do it. Still you have people devoting their lives to it, and if you're not interested in doing something the Bible says you can't do, then you can't possibly love God. You must not be one of the chosen, because we've cracked the code. Until the date comes, it doesn't happen. And we realize we need to adjust our X variable or something. Man, these guys. How about this? Dividing over whether a real Christian drinks alcohol or watches TV. Foolish controversies. Just foolish. But again, whole denominations, whole branches of Christianity that are built just on these divisions. Foolish. Whether or not people of different races can truly love each other, bear one another's burdens, be brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't we feel a particular sting in that area in our culture today? It's such a foolish controversy, such a foolish thing to divide over. Jesus did not die for this kind of stuff. Yeah. These types of debates are unprofitable and worthless. Paul's words, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's not just a matter of how important is this to you. Maybe this is, maybe God's put that on your heart. Maybe that's not for everybody, but God's called you 
to really put this as a matter of first importance in your personal faith? No, there, there are no categories of how important these kinds of things should be to the church. They're all unprofitable and worthless. To quote the Holy Spirit, they will only hurt people. Only hurt people. Never help people. These types of things cannot be the prerequisites for our unity. Here's what I mean by that. As a church, so gathering here together, as a family of people who are pursuing Christ, the knowledge of Christ, the grace of Christ, the love of Christ, as a people who are pursuing Jesus together as a family, a spiritual family. If we are ever unified based on these types of things, we have to understand we're not unified. We're not actually unified in any way because these things aren't important to God. They're never meant to unify people. So people will change on this kind of stuff, depending on your season of life, or depending on how many kids you have right now. Well, I can get to a church like that because I don't have six little kids in my home. I'm trying to get ready and get involved in this and do this thing over here. And there's something about that church that's just built around being able to do that. I just can't do that. So these kinds of things that are just about like season of life and about personal temperament and about personality, like if the church is built around being staunchly systematic in some way that's rigid, rigid where the Bible isn't rigid, you have to look like this, talk like this, be in these places at these times, otherwise you can't be part of the church, then you are not actually unified. You're just type A. You're just type A, and you're more comfortable with type A people around you. And type A people make you nervous. And so, since they make you nervous, and they're just all creative and right-brained and way over here, and there's no planning, that must be so ungodly, right? That must be so immature to be that way. You're not unified. There is only one thing that can actually unify the church. Belief in the gospel. Belief in the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. This is the thing that is meant to unify us. No other thing. An attempt to be unified around anything else is foolish, worthless, destructive. That's why we make such a Maybe at times such a repetitive, annoying kind of emphasis about the gospel of Jesus. It's why we're going through Colossians. We're just like, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Okay, okay. What about my marriage? Okay, let's talk about your marriage. Look at Jesus. Remember the gospel of God's grace in Jesus, and you'll be able to find a place where forgiveness can be real. It can be legitimate. It can be heartfelt. We have to be formed and unified by the gospel. Otherwise, the church becomes foolish and becomes worthless. Just like the controversies we love and debate. Just like all the minor, secondary, third, fourth, 
fifth-tier issues that you can't even find in the scriptures, and yet we're dividing over, and we become as worthless as those things. But when we are singularly focused on Jesus as the core of the message of God to the world, to love Him, to exalt Him, to devote our lives to Him, to believe and trust only in Him, then we will become, in the world, as important as Christ is to the world. We are Christ in the world. Jesus says about Himself, I am the light of the world. And then later He says to the believers, you are the light of the world. If we're devoted to stupid stuff, what is the world going to see? A bunch of stupid stuff. A bunch of stupid people acting stupid about stupid stuff. I mean, honestly, right? Isn't that what we've become? The church has become, in a lot of the world's eyes, just a bunch of stupid people arguing. Just, this is just what you care about. This is your little thing that makes you feel important, so you all squabble and fight over it. They're like, nah, I'm good. I'm good. But if we're about Jesus, if we are singularly focused on, on telling the world the truth about Jesus, then listen, you cannot just be ignored. You can still be called a fool. You, you can still be brushed to the side as something that I'm not going to get into. I'm not going to invest my life in the way you do because I don't believe what you believe about that. But you cannot be ignored because the gospel has power. It is the thing that in a godly way divides people. In a righteous way divides people. Color of the carpet, pews or chairs, we got both. That's what we're saying. <laughs> that stuff divides people for really bad, foolish worthless, destructive reasons, but the gospel divides people in a really healthy way. And not that we want people on the wrong side of the equation. We're pleading, we're preaching, we're asking, we're inviting, always wanting people to believe, but where they don't, we entrust them to the Lord. And here we go. Verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. Now listen, verse 10, verse 10 gets into the people who are promoting these things. We already know what to do with the message of those things, the information. What about the people? As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Hard word, right? Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Now here's where this is really difficult for us. It's like grace, grace, grace. God has been so richly gracious to us. How is it that you warn a person once and then twice and then have nothing to do with them? How does that work? Well, here's how it works. The church is a gathering of people who are about Jesus. And Jesus is what unifies them. So if somebody wants to come in and be part of the church and go, no, 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 let's not be unified just around that. Let's also add this and this and this, because if we don't have these things, then we can't possibly be truly following God. And you look at that person and go, hey, look, that's dangerous talk. It is only Jesus who unifies us. Yeah, that's right. 
To be part of this family, you have to be only about Jesus as a unifying force. There's the first one. Now if they go, well, look, you know, I get what you're saying. Yeah, it's all about Jesus and that kind of stuff. But, I mean, listen, if people are doing this or saying this or whatever, then they can't possibly love Jesus. So that needs to be a prerequisite for our unity. You can't say this or act like this or dress like this or come from here. You go, oh, look, bro, you're missing it. You're missing it. We don't decide who's part of this family. God does. And God's deciding prerequisite on what makes you a part of this family is whether or not you're all about Jesus as the one singular unifying force of the church. We believe in Him, we trust Him, not ourselves or any other thing. So please, lay that down. Yeah. Just trust Jesus. I, I can't get to that place. I can't get to that place. These things are too important. I think they're important to God. So I'm, I'm not going to just be about this trust in Jesus only. There must be other things we have to add. We have to trust in this person to do this thing for us. I've got to do this before I can say I'm really a part of God's family. This isn't your family. Apparently we're not your family. We want you to be. We pray for you. We want to spend time with you, teaching you, warning you, encouraging you to trust in Jesus, to believe the gospel only, and no other thing. But if you've made up your mind, and made up your mind, and made up your mind, then apparently this is just not your family. You're going to find this a frustrating place to exist. You're going to find this a frustrating place to worship. You're just not part of this family. What does that look like? It means this person is not going to be like kicked out of the building. It's not going to be like a picture of them by the door. Have you seen this? Man? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> All grainy, black and white picture. I'm not going to start up some mugshot ministry, you know, just like, well, that's, that's, that's Bill's job. Bill takes pictures of people who have been kicked out. And so that's not what we're talking about. What we're saying is, this is a person that we are not going to trust as a brother or sister because they don't trust Christ as their Savior. That's it. It doesn't mean you don't love them. It doesn't mean you don't pray for them. It doesn't mean you don't devote time to them. It just means you devote your time to them evangelistically. You love them enough to oppose them, to warn them, preach to them. But this person has made it clear out of their own mouths they don't trust Jesus. Not in a saving way. But again... What we're getting at here is the A, B, A, B pattern of what Paul is doing. This, this is what Jesus died for. This is not what he died for. This is what he died for. This is not what he died for. People who don't trust Jesus are not people who Jesus had died for. And we need to see them that way. Interact with them in that way. As someone who does not know Jesus. 
He says finally, starting in verse 12. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis. For I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that they lack nothing. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. I, I believe that most, if not all of you, are in this room right now because you want to find a family of people who are only about Jesus as a unifying factor and not any other thing. And because you want your lives to matter for each other. I, I can't help thinking about this without going kind of dude on you and thinking about the movie Gladiator. It's just one of my favorites. It's not for little kids, so don't just be like, oh, the pastor recommended a movie. It's a movie night. You're all behaving, okay? But in the very beginning, they're about to go into battle, and uh, Maximus is on the back of his horse, and he's got all of the, you know, the <laughs> comrades with him there, and they're about to fly into the battle, and he tells them, what we do in life echoes in eternity. <laughs> and, you know, of course, he doesn't know what he's talking about. The actor, whoever wrote that line, they don't, they don't really know, probably, unless maybe some believers suck in the production room. But there is truth to that. And that's why I think you are here. It's why I'm here. Because I, I want Jesus, and I want Jesus to make something out of my life that matters. That matters for eternity. That has an eternal effect. And the, and the ultimate eternal effect, like Peter says, that your suffering will result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what I want my life to matter for. That Jesus ultimately would receive glory because of how I lived. Not that I would, not that people would even really like me. That's not the goal. The goal is that Jesus would receive glory through how I live my life. And how does Paul sum up what the church should be devoted to in order to see this happen? Believe only in Jesus and devote yourself to good works. Good works. This has been so minimized yeah. in the yeah. church in our day. It's like we've again divided over something really foolish. Should we believe in Jesus or should we be doing good works? Should we be people who are like sitting around studying our Bibles all day because that's how you get to know Jesus? Or should we be people who are in the hands and feet of Jesus? Are you going to know Him? Or are you going to do stuff? That's so foolish. If you know Him, you will do stuff. If Jesus is part of your life, you will be becoming like Jesus. Jesus is always doing good works. He is devoted to good works. If we want our lives to matter, we must be devoted 
for good works. The greatest work is to make Jesus known. Everything after that is good to help, to forgive, to show mercy, to be generous, to be sacrificial, to place others' needs above your own. Good works. We should be devoted. So as to help this version me and not be unfruitful. Finally, just the word unfruitful there reminds me of a verse that if you spent like five minutes in church, especially as a kid, you know John 3.16. We could all quote it together. But some of you would be King James and other would like NIV and that would be a mess. So I'll just say <laughs> For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. There's a word there, perish. Perish does not just mean die. Perish means to never fulfill the purpose for which you were created. Did you know that? That they should not perish, but have eternal life. Perishing looks like an unfruitful life. A life that doesn't matter in eternity. It has no echo. It just happened. And then it's over. And of course, we know in Jesus' context, speaking to a Pharisee in the middle of the night was about whether or not you are a saved person, depending on whether or not you trust Jesus. But in some way, as believers, we can be unfruitful. We cannot matter. I just don't want that. So, wrapping up this letter that Paul wrote to Titus, we can see, and we can adopt as a truth for ourselves, because it's meant to be, we must see Jesus only as our means of salvation. We must not trust in ourselves or any other activity or any other person to reconcile us with God. And if that's our belief, then we must be careful to devote ourselves to good works, works that please God, works that are not about building ourselves up, but building others up. This will be fruitful. It will be pleasing to the Lord. It will glorify Christ. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.